I'm Dean Murdoch, and this is Amazing Places. Welcome to another episode of Amazing Places. My guests today are Ray Stratzma, a member of the board of the BC Cycling Coalition, chair of the Greater Victoria Placemaking Network, a lecturer in the geography department at the University of Victoria, and all-around good guy, and Corey Berger. He is the policy and infrastructure chair of the Greater Victoria Cycling Coalition. Hello, Ray and Corey. It's great to be here. Today, I thought we could talk about a, a topic we surprisingly haven't spent a lot of time on in this podcast yet. This is the first time we've gotten into cycling and cycling infrastructure specifically. I thought, who are two folks that I could turn to who would know probably more than most people in Greater Victoria about cycling and cycling infrastructure. So I'm so delighted that the two of you were available to spend a little bit of time with us today. Why have you dedicated so much of your energy to, to this project, to these, these types of initiatives? Yeah, well, you know, I've lived in, I've lived in a number of cities in Canada, mostly larger cities, um, the Toronto area and, and downtown Toronto for a couple of years and, and Montreal. I was in Montreal for five years and, and then Vancouver. And, and I rode a bike, I was a bike rider um, just for convenience and, and enjoyment and transportation in all of those cities. And, but it was always kind of reckless, um, you know, experience or a, a challenging experience, um, though it was something I, I enjoyed. And, and I, you know, I realized early on that this is not something that many people are comfortable doing. And then uh, particularly when I lived in Vancouver, I mean, in Montreal, I started to see some changes, you know, that the city installed and started to put in some initial cycling infrastructure downtown. And then in Vancouver, I became involved in an organization and they were promoting sustainable transportation, advocating for sustainable transportation. And I worked there for five years called, they were called BEST. There we started to have some real success in, in uh, rethinking and changing the questions really about and changing the conversation about active transportation in Vancouver. You know, there were issues in the background like climate change and air pollution and safety, but it was, for me, it was like, Riding a bike, riding two wheels is a really enjoyable activity, um, uh, one that gets you places quickly and can be time competitive and uh, keeps you healthy and just has a lot of these benefits. And I wanted to see more people, you know, derive those benefits for themselves on a daily basis. Uh, I guess I come to my advocacy naturally from my family history, come from a long line of rabble rousers. And then, you know, my grandparents were actually, as they were part of a, a local cycling club that was in part of the founding of the Greater Victoria Cycling Coalition. I did some advocacy stuff in 2008 and 11 when I ran for Oakley Council, and then that led to actually a job with the CRD for a couple of years, working on implementing the, the then new CRD's pedestrian and cycling master plan. And then when I transitioned back to the private sector in, in 2016, I took on this role as the policy and infrastructure chair. So it kind of, you know, one thing kind of led to another, but I uh, definitely, I think that I have it in my blood from, uh, from both sides of my family. Ray, I really liked your comments about wanting to, to share the joy of, of cycling. And I think that, you know, I, I think you can both relate to this, that it really is, it's infectious, right? It's the kind of, maybe we shouldn't use a term like that right now, but um, it's, it's something that, 
you really you know the the pleasure you get from from riding a bike and how good you feel about it and, and how great the experience can be and it is one of those things that you just want people to try that if they could give it a, a, a try if they could feel comfortable on the bike that they'd get to love it too really so much of this advocacy is about creating the conditions for people to give it a try so that they can feel safe and enjoy the experience of cycling my mother took me, she used to ride me to daycare when I was a kid on the back of her bike uh, in, in the 90s. And then, you know, I started riding myself to, to school as a kid. So, you know, in, in a lot of ways, that kind of joy of riding is it's something, if you can experience as a kid, you're likely to do as an adult, which is why it's so important to get, you know, biking into the schools in as many places as possible. So kids can, you know, it gives them independent mobility. And that's certainly what I experienced as a child. I could get on my bike and I could go somewhere um, by myself. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And, uh, you know, it is something that I think most people, you know, learn to ride a bike as a, as a you know, child and, and maybe continue to ride as a teenager at a certain sort of life stage. Many people, you know, usually around that driver's license age, 16, 17, 18, many people sort of move away from that. But if you, you're, you're in the right kind of uh, city or community or um, you have some, uh, a commute that's not too long. Uh, pe many people have found ways to sort of either rediscover cycling or continue it. Where you live and your per personal circumstance at a certain life stage are a factor, of course, too, in, in discovering or rediscovering um, active transportation or, or cycling in particular. Well, and I think among the many things that are, are benefits is that it's so accessible and affordable that unlike a lot of modes of travel, it's not usually particularly cost prohibitive to get on a bike. I mean, there are some investments in terms of uh, lights and gear and helmet if you're going to become a regular cyclist, but to just get on the bike and experience the, the joy of riding is typically not cost prohibitive, unlike most other forms of, of travel. Yeah, that, that's correct. And I think, I mean, that was, again, my experience in, in going to college and university in Toronto and Montreal. It was like, uh, you know, you really had a kind of economic choice well do I pay rent or do I have a car or uh, you know and have to pay for parking all the time it really in its many urban neighborhoods just it becomes a really attractive choice it really it costs you very little to to use a bike all year round or for most of the year and but yeah it is an economic choice and and you know you save a lot of money over the years by by relying less on an automobile or maybe having, if you're in a growing family, having one automobile instead of two. And affordability is more and more an issue um, in our cities with expensive housing costs and stuff. So that, and that definitely accounts, I think, for more, more people choosing, you know, active modes of transportation. And, and thus cities are realizing that, the smart cities are realizing, well, you know, one way to address affordability is to really invest in active transportation from, so more of your residents have that option. I don't think we should lose sight of the fact, though, that there's, it's relatively easy to get a cheap bike, just like it's relatively easy to get a cheap car. It's important, you know, as we look to widen the scope of who's riding to, to make certain that, for, for example, if you need some sort of an accessible bicycle, you're going to pay a fortune for that. If you need an e-bicycle because of distance or health reasons or for any other that's going to cost you a bunch of money and the government doesn't give you any help with that. In fact, they tax you for it. Uh, um, so, you know, it should be, 
careful about assuming that a bicycle is always going to be easy and cheap, um, especially uh, especially right now when people are struggling, you know, with bills and, and those kinds of things. I I think you make a great point, Corey, and yeah, let's not discount the fact that it still costs money to get. Uh, a, a decent bike to ride on. But I, I think it's still, you know, relative when people are balancing those costs for, for their, their accommodation where they're living, uh, groceries that they have to pay and their utility bills, uh, paying for a car and the servicing and insurance that goes along with that and parking uh, is at a much higher expense for most folks than having a bike that they can lock up in a secure location and not have to worry about parking or insurance or gas Absolutely. you know yeah it's but also you have to look at the you know i'm in the market right now to buy a some sort of a back feet or a cargo bike for initially for the dog but you know later for kids um and it's it's certainly getting one of those is is it, well first of all it's a challenge to get bikes right now in general that those are also tend to be big ticket items and that's we've definitely if you chat with families here in the region and elsewhere, the, the cost of those big ticket items can be a bit of a deterrent. You know, one of the key reasons why people don't ride bicycles is the need to carry things or people, whether they be small people or, or not. And that's, so I think we can do some, you know, from a relatively small amount of dollars, we could really make it easy for people to choose the cargo bike as the default way to carry things or people in the city. Um, but it is going to take some government investment to make that happen. But certainly, I mean, one of the interesting things in recent years, at least in, in North America, and we're seeing, you see it really on the streets here in, in Victoria, is how the, you know, the kind of bikes that are available and that are being marketed and sold and, and, and being purchased are, has changed. And, and Corey mentions these cargo bikes, the back feats, and there's electric bikes, and there's the, the long tails with kids on the back. And so that, you know, and I, all that to me is at least in part uh, a function of, you know, the growing popularity of, of cycling as a, as a transportation option. Uh, for all kinds of purposes, and yeah, some of those bikes are more expensive. But your, you know, your basic two-wheeler transportation commute bike can is affordable for most people and can last a long time. Well, and I think it speaks to the the change in the commuting demographic by bike, right? That, that yeah. it, it, these are folks who do have families that have those shop, stops to make to pick up kids and get groceries and travel with those items that they're not just, you know, throwing a small bag on and, and taken off for, for a destination. These are dedicated commuters by bike. Yeah. And previous, you know, previously, I mean, you go back a few decades and there was, you know, there were kind of commuter bikes, cheap commuter bikes and buy them at Canadian Tire and some stores and, yeah, but the the high end bikes were the big touring, you know, the big touring or racing bikes, uh, the road bikes uh, for the liker crowd and the you know the the mammals, the middle aged men in lycra kind of thing. And that you know that vision of of cycling or that that perspective on cycling um, still kind of lingers with us. And and for a long time, people tended to think of cycling um, in North America as you know as sport related. And one of the interesting things in the last, you know, say 15 years or so is a, a growing recognition, in, again, in the North American context of, of cycling as a transportation mode, right? And that that's, has led to some of these investments. You know, cycling can, is more than just 
a sporty thing or uh, you know a recreational activity. It can be provided uh, an everyday uh, tool for for getting around. With an increasing number of, of folks choosing to get on a bike to get around, uh, it really reveals just how inadequate so much of our traveling infrastructure has been in terms of providing that safe traveling environment for cyclists. You know, roads were generally constructed without consideration for cyclists. Many roads in Greater Victoria were constructed without consideration for pedestrians, never mind somebody on a bike. But we've seen a, a bit of a shift in the way that we perceive uh, that infrastructure for cyclists over the last well, recent years, but probably in the last decade. What do you think has precipitated that uh, here in, in the capital? Well, in, you know, in Victoria, I mean, every city has its kind of, you know, unique history on this. Um, and Victoria, you know, just are, to start with, has a lot of the, the main ingredients, the great, you know, ingredients to make for a, a cycling, a bike-friendly city. Um, you know, it's small and it's, it's a small compact city. It's got a fine grain kind of network of streets like Good Bones in its overall street network. The residential neighborhoods are all already kind of within, you know, proximate or within walking distance or short distance from the main downtown core. Um, and, and Victoria, you know, had already was known at 20 years ago as a cycling city, you know, a, a cycling capital, some people even called it and it had a climate had something to do with that probably um but but it hadn't um you know it hadn't made you know it it had some basic sort of cycling infrastructure painted lanes on some of the arterial roads and some quieter residential streets but it hadn't made significant investments um up until you know 2012 2013 and then it started to i think it started to wake up to what other cities were doing and other cities in north america were you know, making leaps and bounds kind of um, dramatic or ambitious investments, particularly in in what was started to be called protected bike lanes or separated bike facilities that provided an extra level of protection. And also more, I think, more attention to building a cycling network, routes that were really connected and seamless and made that, that, that ride to work or to shops or services um, really seamless and 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 legible not you know easy made it easier to sort of find a route and get across your city um quickly so that you know that that whole way of thinking and a kind of design thinking and with a focus really on what was called you know a triple a networks all ages and abilities network so building building a network in your city that that um appealed to both you know the the younger young kids and your your nieces and daughters and sons you know eight eight and nine and ten year olds sometimes teenagers but also to elderly people and that was a kind of concept that i think really got a lot of traction in planning circles the all ages and abilities design or all ages and abilities network and victoria was you know one of dozens of cities that picked up on that um maybe a little bit later than others uh, 2013, 2014, it started to work on an update of a 20 year old bicycle plan. You know, there were some political things that happened, you know, um, I mean, generally, I think in this same period or in the last 10, 15 years, bicycle, the bicycle as a mode of transportation started to become a, a kind of winning political thing. It was in an election campaign 
or for politicians to sort of champion cycling in the city became not a negative, but a positive in terms of winning support. Um, and locally we had, um, you know, councillors and then, and then uh, Mayor Lisa Help selected in 2014, I think, who, who made, uh, you know, psych significant cycling investments a, a big part of her, her election campaign. And she championed that and, and was willing to see it through despite, you know, the, a lot of the, the bike lash and the, and the complaints that you often get with this stuff. Corey, do you think that kind of momentum that's occurred in Victoria has carried into other communities around uh, the capital region? I mean, it's it's a 40-year overnight success. Uh, we were chatting before the podcast a little bit about, you know, the 1970s and, and when the, the sort of abortive second wave of cycling back then, um, you know, and the region had a little bit of that too. We actually, if you go to Vancouver Street, there's a little what we would now call a protected bike lane left on Vancouver Street there that uh, is about to be replaced with another one. So, um, but yeah, I mean, as Ray mentioned, the the really crucial point really was that 2014 election when the really, you know, we, we saw a number of councillors and, and mayor helps elected on a very strong pro-biking platform in the, in the capital, in, in Victoria. And that really builds on I mean, the first bike lane, the first modern bike lane we striped was 1992, I think, just before the Commonwealth Games out near, um, out near Sands Commonwealth Place. So, you know, it's incremental pieces that we've slowly been chipping away. And then that sort of created the space for this big surge. If you look at places like Fairfield and places like that, I mean, people have been commuting by bike for work in Fairfield for 20 plus years, more than that. Um, you know, a lot of them, you know, something close to 20% of the population of Fairfield has been commuting by bike for 20 years or more. So it's, you know, we're seeing it spread outside. I mean, it's, Saanich has an active transportation plan now that talks about all ages and abilities. Central Saanich is in the middle of doing one. So it's North Saanich. Sydney's going to start one next year. It's Quemelt's just about to start one. Oak Bay is finally maybe going to move forward with something next year. They were supposed to have a report back to council this fall about implementing their active transportation strategy, which I was involved with when I lived in Oak Bay in 2008 and 11. I think of my own commute to work. In 2008, I couldn't have taken it because the ENN rail trail didn't exist, the Johnson Street Bridge didn't exist, and the Pandora protected bike lane didn't exist. So these days, I have this nearly completely protected route to work, and that has led to it's part of the reason why Sklymont and Bureau had some of the highest lifts in bicycle commuting in the, in the last census. We'll see what happens in 2021 when we do the next round. One other point I would add that, and definitely, you know, it's you know, I think that 2013 2014 was a kind of pivot point, at least you know, in, in our recent history, of course. You know, prior to that, there was you know, efforts made. Uh, successful efforts to sort of construct the Galloping Goose and Lockside Trails, which, you know, still really serves as a regional spine for the cycling network. So again, that's another kind of part of Victoria's good bones that we just had, you know, uh, a legacy of, of an old railway infrastructure that was converted and, uh, you know, advocates and, and leading politicians at the time were, you know, had some vision. Uh, to sort of retain and, and win the funding and support for that. And yeah, as I, to your point earlier, Dean, about contagion, you know, sort of like I do think, you know, Victoria is now kind of obviously 
leading the region in in its investments and its and its design and its efforts. But um, you know, the surrounding municipalities are all picking up the ball. Um, they have, I think, different sets of challenges. There's sometimes rural communities or more suburban communities. Their their road network is just um, constructed differently. The suburban municipalities with not the same kind of um, downtown centers or urban areas to the same degree at least. So um, the design challenges and building a network, um, particularly in Saanich, I think is a, is a challenge because it's a much larger municipality with spread out with little town centers, um, village centers uh, here and there, but harder to just connect a seamless network in a, in a large municipality like Saanich. So, um, and they, you know, they're, they're making their fair effort. Uh, um, we'd love to see things happen faster, but they all, you know, as Corey said, they have now active transportation plans, uh, blueprints uh, approved uh, by their councils. That's all in, in, in the same last period of, of last six, seven years. I think Sanchez is from 2018 and, and as Corey, yeah, listed some of the others that are, are embarking on those kinds of plans. You use the term bike lash, and, and that's, a, I think, a reference to um, the reaction or the response from, from some folks about the creation of these bike lanes. And I think in particular, the redistribution of road space in order to accommodate these uh, protected bike lanes. So what's at play there? What's going on? Well, a number of things, but, you know, I'd say primarily it's fear of change, you know, like and people are you know certainly some people are you know in a, in a community in an urban center or in our communities in our residential areas see see um changes happening on their roads that they're not used to and they and there is sometimes a sense i think that infrastructure like road infrastructure feels like it's immutable that it can't be changed it's like hard infrastructure but but and then when they see changes they're just they have a hard time sort of uh, accommodating or, or more importantly, sort of imagining how, how a road might change and be designed differently and work differently and function differently or even better. You know, actually more than fear, sometimes I think it's just a lack of imagination. And that's maybe that's, you know, we can do a better job sort of educating people and talking about where changes before and after kind of changes have happened and been successful in the past. But, you know, I, I don't think we can underestimate just the, you know, the impact that 70 years of, of automobile dependency in our cities in North America has, right? Um, people have relied growing up um, in North America with with uh, motordom, with a, a culture, a car culture, where um, their view of their cities and their communities, for the most part, is from behind the windshield or behind a steering wheel, and they they haven't had the opportunity or the habit to see transportation from a different perspective, from from on two wheels, from a bicycle, or from walking, or behind a bus, or on a, sorry, on a bus, this kind of thing. So, you know, so when these changes are made. Yeah, there's resistance. And in my experience, in every community I've lived in, Montreal, Vancouver, really negative resistance and reaction to these kinds of changes when they happen. So it takes, you know, um, courage from advocates and, and courage, especially from local politicians to sort of move ahead and, and make these things because they're not, it's not easy to um, 
to plow ahead and, and make these investments when, you know, you're, when there's an election coming up and your, your job as a counselor is kind of on the line. Uh, um, I think you, you understand that as well as anybody, Dean. I remember seeing a picture of the intersection of Fow Bay and Oak Bay from the late, mid-1970s. And I realized that, you know, aside from the buildings around it, you know, to Ray's point, the roads haven't changed. In fact, it's not only that the roads hadn't changed, the, the way the lines were painted hadn't changed since then. That means that there are people whose entire adult lives have lived with the road looking one way, and then suddenly tomorrow it's gonna look different. So, you know, the, what I've seen from, from surveys, you know, both here and, and elsewhere is that there's, you know, a very large percentage of people who want these changes, you know, usually almost a super majority, but there's a there's a percentage of people who are very very against them. So it's not that they don't like them; it's that they are very actively. I mean, I the starkest I think I saw was actually from the city of Vancouver. There was a they're putting a protected bike lane on Drake Street, and you know, sixty something percent of the people supported it, either very strongly or um, a little bit. You know, a few percentage people said they weren't so keen on it. A few were neutral, but there was 20% of the population that very strongly opposed it. So it was like, it's, you know, it's super polarizing. And that little group is very, you know, have made their voices very clearly known that it's, hey, this is not something that we like. What we've seen in election after election after election all over the place is that biking is actually a winning issue. You know, we, we really didn't know going into the 2018 election whether or not it would be a winning issue here. Um, whether or not, you know, councillors who had stuck their neck out and the mayor who really put a lot of political capital into this would be able to, would, you know, if this would be a stick that the electorate would beat them with. And it turns out it's not. People actually like the bike lanes. You know, they want more of them. Uh, you know, to give an example, the most recent round of consultations that led to the approval of Richardson and Haltane was one of our biggest, GVCC's biggest call-outs in years since the original Victoria plan. So it's clear that there's a huge appetite for people who want these, these bikeways to come to their neighborhood. Um, and now they are, and now they're really excited about it. And they're, and you know, and they're clearly voting that way and talking that way. So it's, it's exciting to see, but it's, I don't think it's gonna go away anytime soon. You know, as to race point, it is really about change, and change is hard. I think you're both right. I, I do think that it's a, a bit of a fear of the unknown, um, but there's also the the folks that they're just not going to become a cyclist, right? No matter how much uh, infrastructure goes in place to create those protected bike lanes, that they are very likely going to continue to to move by automobile for for whatever reason. And I think when they see this infrastructure go in, that it, it often comes at the expense of the traveling environment for the automobile. You know, two and three lanes dedicated for travel in one direction suddenly get reduced down to two or even one lane to accommodate those vehicles. So there's, it creates this kind of us and them dynamic for those folks. There's this sense of competitiveness that someone else's gain is their loss and it's not something that they can really stomach. But I think what's lost in that discussion it's just not the case that you're going to add further congestion by reducing those vehicle lanes in favor of creating those cycling lanes. I mean, if you, if everybody who was using that the Pandora bike lane chose to drive a vehicle as a, as a single occupant, we would have gridlock on Pandora. 
that those bike lanes, although they may not seem like they're being utilized at the same rate as those two or three traveling lanes on Pandora, there are thousands of people traveling by bike that are not in an automobile, that are not further congesting the streets. So really, by investing in cycling infrastructure, you're actually freeing up some of that congestion. You're, you're, if, even if you're not going to be a cyclist, your tax dollars are being spent in a way that's going to help you get around more easily and support somebody else to get around more easily and safely. Yeah, no, I think that's a really important point. And I think that yeah, point does get made um, and is understood among, you know, amongst maybe a growing sector of the population, especially once these uh, you know, bicycle infrastructure and protected lanes are, are built because once they're like, there's often opposition or anxiety before they're going in and the debate is out there and it's live and there's lots of loud opposition. And so there, there's definitely a part of the population who are like, I don't know about this and it's another crazy government idea or whatever. But one, almost without exception, what in cities across North America, once the once this infrastructure is in, people see how it works. They 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 see how it benefits both bicycle riders and provides benefits and safety for pedestrians by creating extra safety and actually provides, I think, for drivers particularly like clarity and legibility on the road. Now they have a clear understanding of our, okay. Here's if cyclists are on the road, here's where they're going to be, and they can and it's just um, safety and clarity. Um, for you know, uh, for op when you're operating a car, the zero sum thinking, right? Like, oh, if if someone's winning, if cyclists are winning, I must be losing. Or as a driver, I'm I'm going to. And yeah, when you just look at finite road space, um, it can feel like that. But the the reality is that you know, adding bicycle infrastructure um, actually provides a lot of benefits even for non-cyclists and so you mentioned congestion and think about all those all those cyclists thousands of cyclists that are coming into downtown Van, uh, Victoria now every day if each one of them or even most of them were driving around looking for a parking spot you know um, you know and that you know drivers will tell you more than anything oh parking is their number one frustration or finding a parking spot or having to pay for parking and that but well think how much it would worse it would be if if uh we didn't have all those cyclists coming in commuting into town so so yeah we need to move away from from that zero sum thinking and and i think as we build this kind of infrastructure in a smart way by building high quality bicycle lanes and pedestrian space and even patios and plazas um, for multimodal kind of transportation cities then then I think that you know slowly gets understood and and it's and proven to be successful certainly in in many many European cities and increasingly here in North America. Interesting how there's a bit of a perception versus reality gap here there's in the region there's a lot of fire and smoke about the commute to the west shore because that is where the number of people driving is increasing. But if you actually look at the, the numbers of people driving on streets in and around the core of Victoria and to a, to a certain extent into Oak Bay, Esquimalt, Saanich, on a bunch of those streets, the number of people driving has, you know, the number of cars on those streets has actually been dropping sometimes for years. And, uh, you know, you look at somewhere like Cook Street or Pandora, I mean, the volume of vehicles on those streets has been dropping. Um, so it's, you know, people think that congestion is increasing 
And it actually isn't. <laughs> um, so the interesting question is, what's driving that perception gap? Why, uh, you know, perception is reality to the to to people. So you know, you can show them all the data you want, but if they don't believe it, they're not going to go for it anyway. You know, I, I think it behooves us to talk about you know the benefits better, and also talk about. I mean, to Ray's point about it's not just about biking as well. You, one of the reasons why it's driving is dropping in this region is because there's more people walking and there's more people taking transit because we've made investments in those areas as well. So it's important that we make investments everywhere, you know, for people walking, for people biking, for people taking transit. And we don't end up in a, in a zero sum game where the people walking, biking, taking transit are fighting each other for this space. You know, the cycling coalition, we reached out to a number of different groups, including placemaking, but also walk on and better transit alliance to try and, you know, make sure that we talk to the other advocates to, so we don't accidentally step on something they're planning on working on. You know, we, during the early COVID periods, walk on in the GBCC, we put out a call for, you know, Shelburne street to, to do some temporary work on Shelburne street. It's about making sure we're not accidentally fighting each other and to close that perception gap that the, the bicyclists are ascendant, therefore people, other pe everyone else is going to lose. Unfortunately, a narrative that's come up a few times in the region and certainly not here elsewhere as well. Where do you think we're headed? You know, we've seen this, as you both pointed out over the, the last decade, this very significant shift towards investing in, in cycling infrastructure and protecting vulnerable road users with better infrastructure. Where do you think things are headed? You look at, so the city of Vancouver just released their climate plan for, and they want to have three quarters of all trips by 2030. If you look at the capital region's own climate report from 2018, tr transportation is our biggest driver of climate impact here in the region. So it's not a question of whether we want to go to a world in which most people bike, walk, or take transit. It's a question of we have to and how do we get there as fast as possible. And it's really key that we talk about bundling those three together because it really isn't, you know, there are people who cannot ride a bicycle. Um, you know, that was my grandmother in the last few years of her life. Um, she rode till 88, but, uh, uh, you know, that's not everybody. So let's make sure that there's space on those buses, you know, and there's, you know, we talk about creating 15 minute cities. That's also a key part of it. So you can walk to a grocery store. Even if we electrify everything, I think one of the interesting things I saw was some interesting climate impact work done out of London, on Ontario, that basically said, even if we electrify all existing trend, all existing drives, the climate impact of the roads alone and the impact of building all those vehicles will overwhelm us in terms of our, our carbon budget. So it's, you know, absolutely there's going to be electric vehicles and electric buses, but the, the mode shift needs to be the priority for from a climate lens at least. Looking forward, I mean, it's clear to, I think, um, certainly most community and city leaders, um, politicians, you know, in our, in our cities, in our large cities, uh, major cities and, and middle-sized cities, certainly, um, you know, the future is multimodal, right? It's, we need to sort of look at our transportation system as a series of choices, and we need to make as many of those choices as safe and convenient and enjoyable um, as possible. And so transit is a big, uh, important factor in moving forward and, and creating sustainable cities in the future. And walking too, in, in my view, I mean, the, the, you wanna start almost from walkability, 
Um, that's the kind of core um, experience. And, and if you have a walkable city, your city is also, or your neighborhood is also, you know, bike friendly and also transit friendly. Um, and Victoria, again, is lucky in that regard. I mean, it's, it's amazing. It was amazing to me to learn when I moved here that, you know, 22, 23% of, of Victorians walk to work. Um, you know, that's a remarkable number, way higher than anywhere else I've seen in Canada. And again, that's just a factor of, you know, that's a Victoria specific stat um, that's, you know, because the city's small, only 20 square kilometers, you know, residential neighborhoods are really within that short distance of, of employment areas. So yeah, I think the, you know, the cities are, have to be when it comes to transportation to be multimodal. And when you think about, you know, in almost any other kind of activity in life, uh, commercial activity or entertainment, you want to have choices, you know, you want to have on your television, you want to have streaming services, Netflix and cable or, or news and in the grocery store, you want to have choices of, of types of coffee and, and in the same really should be true of transportation and, and for some reason, yeah, um, or for a whole host of reasons, uh, for most of the 20th century, we kind of relied on one, one mode um, of transportation when we were making investments and when we were making choices um, as taxpayers and as, as leaders and, and as citizens. So that's started to change. Um, and that's where we're going. I do think just one final, yeah, the pandemic, I think, is, is raising all kinds of interesting questions about the you know, future of cities and how we get around, you know, maybe that, maybe that car commute is going to slowly kind of dissipate if, if we have lingering effects of the pandemic, but that's almost a topic for another, another uh, podcast. Um, but yeah, I think it's still a sort of the open, the jury's um, still out on, on all the impacts that the pandemic may have on, on transportation, but certainly in the short term, it's, it's made cycling more attractive and, and has led to all kinds of experiments um, with you know, temporary bike lanes and things like that. And we've seen some of that here locally and, and certainly around the world. Ray Stratzma is a member of the board of the BC Cycling Coalition and is the chair of the Greater Victoria Placemaking Network. Corey Berger is the policy and infrastructure chair of the Greater Victoria Cycling Coalition. Thank you both so much for spending the time with us today. And thank you for the work that you do. This tireless advocacy obviously is starting to pay off in spades. Uh, you're making a big difference for the folks out there who want to feel safe uh, when they get on a bike and uh, head for their destination. Well, thank you very much, Dean, and thanks for the invitation. It's uh, great to be here, yeah. This has been another episode of Amazing Places. I'm Dean Murdoch. Thanks for listening.